marketing, explosive growth, and revolutionary secrets that can catapult your business to new heights. You're now listening to the Underground Marketer Podcast with your host, Tudor Dumitrescu. The one podcast devoted to showing new businesses how to market themselves for high growth. Welcome to the Underground Marketer. This is the place where we deliver the real truth about marketing and explore big ideas that can help new businesses thrive and grow into big ones. I'm your host, Tudor, and today it's my pleasure to welcome Ron Carr to the Underground Marketer. He is a sales success expert award-winning speaker and author of five books, including a bestseller and the newly released Velocity Mindset. Through his presentations and advisory services, Ron has generated over a billion dollars in incremental revenue for his clients. Welcome, Ron. Thank you, Tudor. How are you today? I'm doing very well, thank you. How about you? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. So, I mean, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your story and how you got involved into sales and how that took you to developing the velocity mindset, as you call it. I don't know if we have enough time to go through that whole story, but I'll give it my best. So, number one, I started selling in uh, 1980. It was after two years after college when I couldn't get a sales job to save my life because companies were saying, well, you don't have experience. And I'd say, well, how do you get experience if not given a chance? And I wanted to be in mm-hmm. medical device sales. And now I've literally saved a couple of medical device companies as they've called me in to help them. So it's funny how the uh, world comes full circle. In any event, I sold professionally and managed for 10 years in the computer industry. And then I started my business as a result of a family tragedy that I had to navigate on my own, which turned out well. But it was a tragedy that taught me that we only have so much time. And why do you want to be a victim of someone else's decisions? Why don't you control your own destiny? And my job wasn't making sense. So it propelled me into starting my own business. If that tragedy didn't happen, I'm not sure we would be speaking here today as the expert that you brought onto your show. Mm-hmm. So I started that business in 1988, and I've been speaking, consulting, and coaching for the last 33 years. The velocity mindset is something that I guess I've been working on all my life because all my work has been how to help entrepreneurs and organizations grow their businesses. You know, I'm ADD, but what ADD does for you, you know, your mind gets scattered. But that scatteredness is a positive for me because when people are talking to me, I can actually see down the road that they can't see mm-hmm. and where things are not making sense. And I ask them questions and then they get new ideas. So that was a big part of my practice and helping people get to where they want sooner and later. But it culminated in the actual velocity mindset. I was president of the National Speakers Association. And when I was done in June 2014, I had nine surgeries in three years. Wow. Most of them on my back. You know, Tiger Woods had one level fused. I have nine levels fused. But I'm still playing golf today, believe it or not. But it took a long time to come back. But during those three years, I couldn't do anything. I could only consult by phone. I couldn't travel, speak. So when you're laid up in hospital beds, you know, on drugs, and you're thinking about your life. And at that time, I was 57. I looked at all the good things and successes I had, and there was many. But then I looked at the things that I didn't get to and wondered why. And the thing that came up for me was simple. It's the stories that you're telling yourself as to whether or not you can, cannot do it. And I just learned things that were getting in the way of my velocity 
And I realized I don't have a lot of time left. You know, I'm 65 now, so I'm on the back nine. But uh, if you really want to get to where you want to be before the time runs out, you better start moving. So that's how the urgency and the velocity mindset came about. And while I am a known sales and leadership expert, my mission right now is helping everyone get the velocity mind, live the velocity mindset in a way that doesn't make them disappointed after a period of time when they realize they haven't achieved the results that they wanted. Mm-hmm. I'm intrigued, Ron. What exactly is the velocity mindset and what are the steps that one needs to take to get there? So if I ask you, what is the first word that comes to your mind, Tudor, when you hear the word velocity, that word is? Speed. Fast. Quick. Exactly. And that's what many people say. And, that, and many people, that's all they say. And what I tell my audience is when I'm speaking, if that's all you think velocity is, is speed, then you're going to get burnout. Now, let me explain. Most of us are task-oriented, not purpose-oriented. We're so busy every day doing our to-do list and trying to do these tasks that we never really ask, is this really supporting my overall purpose? And so we waste a lot of time. And then we wonder why after those days when we didn't even have a chance to have lunch, we, you know, we keep asking ourselves, how come I didn't move the needle forward? The true definition of velocity, the physics definition, is velocity with direction. You have to start mm-hmm. with the end in sight first. So let me give you an example. You go to a pilot at an airport, let's say in Newark, New Jersey, going to um, Miami, you ask the pilot where we're going today. And he says, I don't know, wherever the winds take us, would you stay on that plane? No, of and course the answer not. is yeah. probably not. Yeah, right. But what a pilot does, they'll sit there and say, okay, we want to go to Miami from Newark. So they start with Miami, the end, in sight first. Then they work their way back to find the three or four waypoints that they know if they're flying over these, they're on their way. And then they look at the potential obstacles like winds and storms. And at the end, they have a flight plan that's going to get them there the fastest and safest way possible. Mm-hmm. What most people don't do, entrepreneurs especially, they don't start with the end in sight. Meaning, what's your vision? What's your vision for what you want to be? A perfect example for an entrepreneur would be, you know, if I'm brought in, let's say, to a $10 million company and the CEO started the company about three, four years ago. And they said, okay, we want to grow to $20 million. And that's their vision. They need to start making decisions today as if they were a $20 million company. Mm -hmm. Because $20 million companies make different decisions than $10 million companies. So that's why it's so important to be focused on your purpose for everything you do. For example, on a sales call, you know, sometimes uh, I'll speak to a sales executive and they say, yeah, I'm going on meeting this new prospect I'm dying to get to. And they finally gave me an appointment. I said, great, what's your call for the call? Oh, I want to close the deal. I said, okay, what's your sales cycle? Five calls. What call is this? Number one. So you're telling me you're going into call number one with the goal of trying to close the deal. If you do that, you're going to be kicked out in two minutes. Because all you're going to be doing is talking about why you're so great, why your products are so great, and close, 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 close. And you haven't even established any kind of interest or relationship. Mm-hmm. The goal for that call should be simple. To qualify them if they are really a true prospect for you and whether you're good for them and they're good for you. And if so, then create a path forward that you both agree on. So whatever we're doing in life, we have to make sure we know what the purpose is and let that purpose drive us so we get the results that we want. This is very interesting. So, I mean, a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with this very idea, the idea of creating that vision for the future. 
I mean, there's all sorts of obstacles that I see. Some of them, they don't dream big enough. Others have some sort of vague vision, but they have no idea how to identify the steps to make it happen. So how do you help people resolve those problems and go through them? That's a great question, Tudor, and it definitely is a big issue. So number one, I hear that same thing over. I even said the same thing. I still do. I don't know what I want. Okay. Well, the first thing we say in the Velocity Mindset book is start with a clean piece of paper. And what that means is forget the past because the past is limited by what you think you know is possible. If you're obviously looking to create different and better results, then if you were able to do them with your tasks in the past, you would have achieved them already. So forget the past for a second. Start with a clean piece of paper and fantasize. Write down what you truly want. Now, a colleague of mine gave me a different spin on it, Bruce Turkel, because he wrote a book, you know, Is That All There Is? And he has a neat little trick of what he does to help people with that. He says, write a list of the things you don't want. Mm -hmm. We all can do that very easily. Absolutely. And then ask the opposite. If you don't want that, what do you want? Now, here's what everybody has to understand. Number one, you don't have to have the clear picture about what you want up front. Dr. Nito Cobain, president of High Point University, who wrote the forward to the Velocity Mindset, I interviewed him on a live stream, and he came from Lebanon by himself. His mother sent him to the United States to create a good life for himself. He only had $15 in his pocket. He settled in High Point. And I said, so Nito, so you really had a vision of what you wanted. And this was a great distinction he gave. He goes, Ron, I had a vision that I wanted to be a success in America, but clarity of vision only comes from walking the journey. So you have an idea. And it's usually a big idea. And the first thing that your stories will tell you is, oh, it can't happen. Don't know how to do it. And you forget about it. You stop thinking about it. You don't allow yourself to keep doing it. Now, there was a book written in 1913 called The Science of Getting Rich by Wallace Waddles. 1913, he evaluated all the industrials who made it big and all the other wannabes who didn't. And he wanted to know if he could identify traits of why those industrials succeeded. And there was a couple he identified, but one was called the thought and formless substance. The big idea. So all of a sudden, you're driving down New York in 1980s, and you see this building that you know has true potential, but it's in a bad area, and you feel like no one's in here, no one's going to do anything. So it's, yeah, it's a great idea, but it's too big for you, and you keep driving by. 19 people drive by. The 20th person does something different. They drive by, see the same potential, but they don't give up on the idea. They don't have the answers, but they let that idea fester in their conscious mind for every waking moment. And while it does that, they start asking questions of themselves and others. They start getting answers. It starts filling in the picture. They go to an architect. The architect takes out their ideas from their head and put it into a nice picture. Now you can touch and feel. They go to a contractor who explains what they need and materials and labor. They go do it. And before you know it, the building becomes a reality. What most people are not comfortable in life is not having the answers. And what leaders have to understand is that your job is not to have all the answers. Your job is to look to the future and see the direction that you want to go that has passion for you Mm -hmm. and that you believe in it. And then go and ask the questions of yourself and others. And then the uh, image, you will fill in the blanks. Now, I can give you an actual example of this. A multinational chemical manufacturer, they had a, a small d- division in Tucson that uh, produced chemical reagents. They were working on this one reagent for 20 years. When it came out in the 1980s, it literally 
save the copper mines from going bankrupt because a few of them were going already that way. Mm-hmm. And there's reagent cut in half to cost the mining copper. So when you come out with something new and so drastic like that, your sales jump up. They had 80% of the world market share. But then it waned because competitors started re-engineering it. And even though their products were not as good, they beat them on price. So when they got a hold of me and after I spoke for their division, the VP said, look, you know, the biggest copper mining company, you know, we have 25% of the demand. All their bids for the mines are coming up and we're meeting with the sourcing team next week. Can you help us? And I said, sure. So I flew to Tucson, sat down with them. And Tudor, the first question I asked them was this, what do you want as a result of my intervention? Mm-hmm. And their answer was from the past. They said, oh, we want to win the bid. And I said, that was not my question. You're answering from the past. If you can create your own destiny that has passion, what would it be? And then all of a sudden, the passion came out. And they said, why don't we have to bid? We started this industry. We saved their butts. So what do you want? We want a negotiated agreement. Okay, good. They usually buy the industry every three years, bid for lowest price. How long do you want it for? 10 years. I said, okay. And how much demand? You got 25%, 75%. So then I looked at them and I said, you want a 10-year deal, 75% of their demand and negotiate it. They said, yes. And I said to them, you can get that if you really want it, but it takes a different set of actions to get that than it does to win a bid. And so they were a little, you know, quizzical, not really believing it. And they said, how do we do it? And I said, I had no clue. And they go, what? And I said, look, I know in my heart of hearts, you know, I've been doing one tenth of what I'm going to suggest. So I really do believe you have the opportunity to get there. We may not get there exactly, but you'll be well on your way. But you have to be willing to think differently. That's an example of dealing with the white piece of paper and looking at things for what you want to create, not from the vision of why it won't happen based on your past experiences and biases. That's very insightful, Ron. I mean, even when you go to your clients, and this is not just about the vision that you have for yourself, but even when you go reach out to clients, you often encounter this resistance because people, when they come to speak with you, they already have some preconceived ideas let's call them in their mind. And they hold on to them very tightly usually. And the skilled salesperson, as opposed to somebody who doesn't have the same level of skill, knows how to give them the right insight that's going to enable them to have a bigger vision and to think differently. So I wanted to ask you, how does the velocity mindset help us do that in our own selling when we interact with our own clients? Yeah, great question. The skilled salesperson doesn't tell them anything. They ask questions and they elevate the conversation from the product to the what, to the enterprise conversation. In the velocity mindset, we talk about hormones in the brain and how to engage people. If all we do is puke, which is people who utter knowledge about everything, if all we do is start talking about products only and features and puking about them, we're just stressing them out and they don't want to hear it. If we change the conversation to about them and ask them where they're going, not about our products, where they're going, what they want to accomplish, and what their biggest challenges are, and we flush it out, then we're in a much powerful position. First of all, they'll be listening to you. They'll be engaged. I won't explain the hormones on this brief interview, but they can read it in the book. It's very simple. But they'll be engaged. So then when you present the one, two, or three attributes of what you have to offer in context to what they just told you about, that will be heard with power and you'll have a significantly higher chance of closing a deal. That's awesome. I mean, the, the, that whole approach really is very similar to the spin selling model. 
based on really asking them questions and uncovering the exact problems that they are faced with before actually going into the pitch. And this brings us to an interesting part of the discussion. So very often, the one thing that I've noticed a lot of entrepreneurs have trouble with is closing new business and especially closing new business that doesn't come through referrals or through their network or through people who know them. But closing new business that comes as a result of a cold approach. And the big problem there seems to be how to get their attention, how to get that initial meeting with a key decision maker or really anybody who could have interest from the company that they are targeting. So how would you approach that issue? So when you're cold calling, email, phone, voicemail message, or even speaking to somebody, you need to start with something that's general, but thought-provoking. It can't be about your products or services. Like, for example, we get so many calls from phone companies saying, we can reduce your phone bills by 10% and just hang up on them immediately. <laughs> they know nothing about me. And they don't care about me. Okay. So there was a great book written called The Challenger Sale, which I've been teaching my clients since day one. I was kind of upset that he actually coined it so well, <laughs> but it was a great book. And one of the things he says is what I teach my clients is you got to challenge your clients. So, you know, if you're selling, let's say, um, insurance, instead of just saying, hey, you know, I want to talk to you about life insurance. My name is Ron Cohen. I'm from Life Insurance and I got a great package for you. Those first two lines, you just lost their attention. The most important lines in the email, the subject line and the first line. And if you don't grab their attention, then you're gone. Same thing in the voicemail. The first words out of your mouth have to be like a subject line that gets their attention. It has to be about outcomes. It has not about the how, which is what you do. Outcomes. What are they look, usually looking for? So, for example, if you're writing a letter to um, procurement officers, let's say in uh, for capital equipment, a line could be in the beginning, procurement officers are really charged with reducing the cost of purchasing, and yet they often go about it the wrong way. And then you give them a couple of points that they should be considering. And then you say, I'd love to discuss this further with you so we can really show you how to reduce your costs. Please give me a call. In that conversation, there was nothing about your products, nothing about your services. It was all about them and what they're usually fighting with and how you would teach them that there's a different way. You're challenging them to think differently. And that's the value you build. Now, look, Tudor, not everything works for 100%, all right? What your clients and entrepreneurs have to understand, you cannot do business with everybody. You need to figure out who your ideal clients are. What are the things they demand that are in your sweet spot? If you take on business from everybody, you'll do a half-assed job and some will not be in your sweet spot. They'll take more of your time than you have. It will affect your biggest customers and it's not a good thing. Give you an example. I just did a keynote in Denver about two months ago for a national supply company. And I was interviewing some of their owners, you know, the offices owned by mm -hmm. uh, the employees. And I asked one of them, you know, how are you handling with the supply shortage and everything? He goes, we doubled our revenue. So how do you do that? He goes, well, we're dealing with the supply shortage. And what we did was we went to our biggest customers and we said, look, we have no control of all the shipments and all this. So to make sure that we're there when you need it, we propose that we increase your inventory on hand. Let us buy a lot more for you. But you need to fund it because we can't fund it. That was one thing they did. And on the other side, they refused new business. Wow. Why? Mm -hmm. Because 
If they took on new business, it would be in the demand for the existing customers who got them to where they were. And what it allowed them to do was concentrate on the existing customers, help them become successful, and they bought more and they doubled their revenue. If they took on more new business, it could have done the opposite. And I said, wow, that's really powerful. You should be applauded because you had the guts to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is very powerful. And I mean, this entire story just shows the power of what we were talking about, of having a vision and having a direction that you're pursuing. And I agree with you. I mean, I think that sales at the moment, as it's taught very often, ends up being a lot about the speed aspect. You know, how can we close more deals? How can we go faster? But it sort of ignores the more fundamental, let's say, strategic issues, which are left unaddressed. And I mean, a lot of people take this as the norm. I mean, I've read sales books where um, they say that, you know, strategy should come from the top. I mean, it's not your business as the sales guy to worry about it. Obviously, this isn't the case for entrepreneurs. They have to worry about it. And one of the shortages that I've seen on the market personally is that most sales books, they're not addressed to entrepreneurs. They're not addressed to the concerns that entrepreneurs have when it comes to not actually having a sales process already in place that works and where they have to actually figure it out from the scratch. So how would you say the velocity mindset helps entrepreneurs do just that, build their own sales process from scratch. Because as you may know, when you're first going out and starting your business, you don't know if your product or service really fits with what the market needs. And you sort of have to figure that out, iterate around it, till finally you get something that resonates with shareable size of your market and you can grow from there. It all starts with what you're trying to accomplish. Again, the purpose. I have a startup that put me on retainer. I'm not going to get into their products or anything. But they were trying to get into a new market. They were actually spun off from a bigger company that was just sold. And um, one of their competitors who's uh, doing well, they're all over Amazon and they're doing a big internet business and all that. But when he investigated, he realized that they're throwing hundreds of millions of dollars in this thing, tens of millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And they have that because they're part of a bigger company. This guy doesn't have that because they need to build, as, they need to build it as they get it. Mm -hmm. So I said, why then are you trying to do the same thing they are when you don't have the money? Mm -hmm. How can you leverage what you have? And they have an existing marketplace already and who's in that business. So why don't you leverage those business owners and let's come up with a sales process that's going to help you get those people buying this product that you're trying to launch, get those sales going, and then you'll build it. And that's what the process is doing. But again, you know, they were so seduced about, oh, they're all over, and everybody thinks the internet is so easy. Do you realize if you're going to succeed in internet sales, how much money you need to float the education of the consumer mm -hmm. so that they want to buy it and everything else that's involved? So anyway... It was my role was helping them review their purpose, explaining to them what, what will make sense and what won't. They started agreeing with me. And now we're in the process of developing those processes you talked about. That's awesome. And I mean, it really shows the, the value of going through this exercise to get very clear in your vision. So, I mean, uh, this book is going to be a goldmine. But, the other, but the, other thing, the other thing you just said is valuable to go through this exercise. 
but often you can't do it by yourself. And that's what your listeners have to understand because you're emotionally involved. Sometimes it's hard to see the forest and the trees, but you're better off as getting a mentor or being part of a mastermind. Like I run a chief revenue officer mastermind group for CEOs and VPs of small to mid-sized companies, 10 million to 200 million. And they value these meetings because they have peer-to-peer mentoring when they come in and they share their issues, their concerns, and what they're doing. And then they are questioned by their peers, is this the way you should be thinking? You should be looking at this. And they walk out with different ideas based on that conversation. So I suggest to the entrepreneurs, you should always have an advisor who's right behind you, a mentor, and you should be going to them and sitting down and talking about your purpose. And does this make sense from how they hear it? and let them ask you questions. But the key here, Tudor, is you have to be coachable. And what that means is, if you're asking someone to hear you and then give you their opinion, when they start giving you their opinion, don't start doing what most people do, which is they take an idea or a suggestion, and then they try to fit it into the world as they see it today. And then they say, no, this won't work because we do it this way, we do it that way. You're not being coachable. Being coachable is you put all your ideas aside. And you try to get into the mindset of the person who's sharing it with you and just let it sit in your mind. Like we talked about that big idea and eventually some ideas will come to you. That's when you get the biggest power. But if all you're going to do is poo-poo people's advice or tell them why I can or can't because you're living in the past, don't even bother because you're wasting both your time and theirs. That's fantastic advice. So, I mean, how can people go about developing this more, let's say, positive mindset where they're actually open to the world instead of closed? And I think from my experience, the biggest reasons why a lot of entrepreneurs tend to close up is because of fear. Uh, the pandemic is one of the recent things that people are, people are afraid of. They're afraid of the, the fast changes that are happening and the inability to foresee what's going to happen next with certainty. How can people actually navigate this sort of uncertain environment with a positive mindset, with a mindset that says we have to go for it. You know, we have to go for our vision, for our dreams, and we don't just have to settle with surviving. Well, number one, don't go into it with a scarcity mindset. Go into it with a prosperity mindset. Number two, stop thinking about fear. Fear will never get you anywhere. Look, crap is going to happen. It's life. The issue is not that the crap happened. The issue is how do you respond? And you can't respond well out of fear. End of story. Now, I'll give you a personal example. You know, after those surgeries, I lost a ton of money. Mm -hmm. Couldn't speak for three years. I lost so much money from that and from having to pay for 24-7 home care for a year because I didn't have a, uh, you know, extended home benefit or whatever, that I had to realize I'm going to go do keynote speaking until I'm 70 years old until I drop and then make the money back and then I'll move to Florida. Mm-hmm. I lived in New York all my life. Well, COVID hits all of a sudden. And the first thing that happens is everybody cancels the meetings. There goes 70% of my business again. Well, are you kidding me? And then I saw what was happening in my industry. A lot of my client, my colleagues were like fighting over it. It was going virtual. No one knows what virtual means. Clients are saying, well, you're not really here. So you're not spending as much time and they don't have budgets. They don't know if it's going to work. So they're often speakers that were getting 15 grand, I'll pay you 500. And I'm going, uh, 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 I don't want this game. So I stayed focused on what I wanted. And I knew what I wanted was I had to get this money back. And I wanted to get to Florida because I wanted to have a different lifestyle. I couldn't stand the cold and everything. 
and I want to get myself ready for retirement, but keep working, but in a better environment. Mm-hmm. So I said, what's the fastest way to do that? And I said, well, you got the velocity mindset. You know, you want to write the book and everything's closed right now. What better time to write the book now and have it ready in September? So when it comes to print in March 2021 or in May, it'll be as the, everybody's coming out of the uh, lockdown and be perfect timing. So I decided at that time to write the book, spend most of my time on that and keep my consulting clients and re- on retainers and work with them. And I gave up the speaking. Now, don't, people still called me. I still did virtuals. Okay. But I wasn't wasting my time trying to fight for the little crumbs over everybody. Mm-hmm. That's because I was clear on my vision of what I wanted for me and my business. That's how you do it. Now, what would have done me any good if I said, go, I can't believe 70% <laughs> COVID. Oh, my God. Now, look, I had a little bit of that. We all do. We're human. But you have to get yourself out of it because if you don't, where is it going to take you? So stop trying to prevent the inevitable and stop trying to be a perfectionist. Crap is going to happen. Don't worry about it happening. Worry about how you respond. That's awesome advice. One of the first lessons that I learned as an entrepreneur, which is related to this, is that in this, nobody is coming to save you. You have to ultimately find a way to do it yourself. And just as you said, vision is mission critical, really, when it comes to that. And and by the way, mission with passion, because if you don't have a passion behind it, it's not going to be strong enough to keep you on a track when things push you off the track like Mm -hmm. COVID. And you know what? Something is really interesting that happened in COVID. It was a great pause. We talk about the pause in our book. We all have to take a pause to reassess our purpose and all that. COVID was the great equalizer for all of us. It made us all pause. And unique things happen. All of a sudden, people started moving to different parts of the country. People started asking themselves, why am I doing this? They started the mass resignation. They didn't even like what they were doing. That all came from that. So in a sense, while COVID was horrible, is horrible. Don't get me wrong. A lot of people suffered. We all suffered to some degrees, but some suffered even more physically deaths. If you look at the positives out of it, it was a great equalizer in allowing us to really ask ourselves, is this what I really want in life? And if not, what do I want? Otherwise, without it, we would have kept going on that hamster wheel. So while there were some really tragic situations, there is opportunity in every situation. Can you tell us more about the art of the pause, as you call it, in the velocity mindset and how exactly you use that? Well, you know, the old saying is the moving sand. If you keep doing something over and over and expecting different results, it ain't happening. So what everybody has to understand is simple. You create a, you do an action, it creates a reaction. If you don't like it, change the action. It's as simple as that. If you bring it into a conversation that's not going well or a relationship, It doesn't take two people to make the conversation go better. It only takes one, the person who's owning up to be a leader in life. If you don't like the reaction, change how you are approaching it. And that's the premise of the velocity mindset. One of the things, there's a couple of premises in that book. What would the world look like if everybody acted like a leader and not as a victim of circumstance? And the second premise, if you accept the fact that you're a leader, whether you're a manager or not, and that everybody's a leader, if you accept that you're a leader, then when something goes wrong, The first tendency everybody does is blame something else or somebody else. What a true leader does before they even get to that part, they ask themselves, what could I do differently next time? Give you an example. My first sales job was in 1980 selling copiers. I finally got someone to give me a shot. Royal Business Machines, they were seducing me to take the job. 
It was their first plain bond copier. Now, for your younger people, they may not know what I'm talking about, but that was a revolutionary discovery. But now they can get a little toner cartridge that has powder versus liquid that destroyed your clothes. Mm-hmm. And they were showing me the 15 sexy copies it does a minute. And I said, do you have a collator? I'll be here in six months. Duplicator, six months. So I took the job, but all I have was this one copier that can only do 15 copies a minute, even though they were crystal clear, perfect. And I had to go up against the big machines like Xerox that had all the mm-hmm. other features. So I started cold calling and going to people's offices and said, hey, I'm selling copiers. And they said, well, can you do what the big machine does on the third floor? Can you collate? Not yet. Duplicate? Not yet. Come back when you can. After my butt had the door slam on it so many times and it started turning purple, <laughs> I decided something's got to give. I knew at that young age, well, if you don't like the reaction, who's going to change it? It's you. Mm-hmm. So I took a pause. In this case, the pause was a board meeting, me, myself, and I. We went to the diner in New Jersey, a diner, there's many of them. And when you realize, you got to understand something, stories is what prevents us from moving forward. Something happens to us, or someone says something to us, we immediately create a story as to what we think it means. I had stories going on in my mind at that moment. I'm not good enough. I can't sell to save my life. I only got this one product. There's no way you're going to sell it. You get the point. Stories are fueled with emotion. For example, if you're a young kid, two young kids, and they're both told by a seventh grade music teacher, you have no hope of being a musician, find something else you love. Kid A gets that statement. They use a chip on the shoulder, and they go about to become the best musician ever in the world to prove her wrong. Mm-hmm. The other kid believes the, the instructor and will never touch a musical instrument and hates music for the rest of their lives. An example of two different stories. So one of the things you have to realize, if the story is good, keep it going because it's pushing you forward. Unless it pushes you forward where you're now sacrificing your family, then you may need to pull back. But if a story is not serving you well, then here's the real powerful thing to think about. He or she who writes the story can change it. Because after all, it's just a story and you wrote it. No one else told you that. It's your story. And when you think about it like that, the emotion goes away, the negative emotion. Now you can sit there clearly. So when I took myself to the diner, I said, okay, let's think about how we can do this differently. And I was in the process now pausing to rechange my story. So I said, what's going on? You're going in, then you're saying you sell a copy. What did I say? They compare to Xerox. You can't do it, so you get kicked out. Well, are you really selling a copier? Because I knew I was selling outcomes. What does a copier do? It's a communication vehicle. I said, maybe we change the conversation of that. On the next call, I went in and I asked the office manager, would you agree with me that a copier is nothing more than a communications vehicle? And they said, yes. I said, well, when it comes to that, what are your biggest issues? And Tudor, it was almost like she was in the therapist's office laying on a couch. She goes, oh my God, can we talk? Joe or Sally has to get up from the desk on the first floor to make one copy. By the time they talk to everybody, get to the staircase, go up to the third floor. Then they have to wait behind all those big jobs to make one copy. Then they have to make the reverse trip. My God, it could take them two hours. I said, wow, how often does that happen? Try the equivalent of two full-time employees. I said, wow, how would you like those two full-time employees back? She goes, how are you going to do that? I said, look, I'm not competing with the machine on the third floor. That's a great machine. Keep it. I'm here to fill in your gaps. I suggest you don't buy one machine for me. You buy three. Put one on every floor for those one or two copies, and you'll get those two full-time employees back. She bought three machines that day. Wow, awesome story. And I started selling multiple machines. Mm-hmm. And this is from a guy that for four months was convinced he couldn't sell to save his life. Mm-hmm.
I mean, it's all about the the ownership, really, that you decided to take over your story and how things were going that made the difference. You know, I really love a book written by a uh, an ex-Navy SEAL, Joko Willink, called Extreme Ownership, which talks exactly about this mindset that whatever happens, even if you don't directly cause it, you are responsible for it because you're the only one who can do something to change it, to make it different. And I think right. that that is amazing uh, for entrepreneurs. I think that everybody to be really successful needs to go through the phase where they have this insight that, oh, I need to take ownership of this and it's on me to make it work. For my next question, I wanted to ask you something that startups often struggle with. Because unlike existing businesses, startups don't already have proof that their solution works necessarily. And they also don't have the credibility that bigger organizations have. So how do you go about doing sales when you have little credibility to offer? Well, number one, sometimes they have some credibility, but they don't even see it or know it. And they don't leverage it. With this startup that we have, we'll just say that there's a couple of highly well-known government entities that are using their technology because they believe in it, but they don't talk about it. So it's leveraging what you have. If you go out and you get one customer who's really happy, take your cell phone out and ask them one question. Would you mind giving me an answer to this one question and give me permission to use it? Sure. What is it? What are the three things that really turn you on about this product? That's credibility. Somebody else saying it, not you. Now, in some industries, like in medical devices, sometimes they will get doctors who are well-known in their, in their field. They'll get them to look at their research or their new machine, and they'll get really interested. And they'll say, hey, do you, would you like to be an influencer for us? And it's all above board. And they'll put them on whatever. And those people are now recommending it because A, they're using it, they believe in it, and they're leveraging their expertise. So there's ways to do it, right? The question is, are you looking for it? Now, ways that startups can easily do it is send out free units to people, to influencers, have them look at it, have them check it out and say, would you tell us what you think, number one? And number two, can we share your comments? So there's different ways, okay? You can have, um, when I started my business in uh, 1988, you know, I went to the local newspapers, the, the, the Bergen County Record and so forth, and did a press release on who I am and why I'm doing this business and what it is. And we got interviewed. And the next thing you know, there was an article out there. There's so much media out there in terms of TV shows and newspapers, podcasts that we're on, they're all looking for good stories. So why not create a really good story about what you're doing and put it out there, let people interview you, then you have the credibility also. There's many ways you can do it. But credibility is a real important factor, as you say, and it has to be part of the business plan. Thank you for sharing that, Bron. That's, that's absolutely fantastic. I wanted to ask you now, if you can tell us who will benefit most from reading the Velocity Mindset and what sort of results can they expect after having read it? Everybody. And I'm not being glib. The reason why I'm saying everybody, because you're going to find out what stops you and how can you move forward. And also when you, when you need to get people to support you, because you know your success is not just by you, you need to depend on others. When you learn how to get people to support you, how the brand works, how to engage everybody else, and also how to engage yourself and not let yourself get turned down by your own stories, that's really anybody. That's fantastic. I also wanted to ask you the question that I ask every guest because our audience really wants to know this kind of stuff from people. 
And that's the question, basically, what are your top five books for entrepreneurs? Not your books here, but generally top five books that you would recommend. Uh, that's a tough one because I don't remember names. So <laughs> <laughs> The Challenge of Sale is one. Spin Selling I Love, Neil Rackham did a great job with that in the 1980s on great research. There was a book called The Celestine Prophecy. Mm-hmm. The reason I love that one is it's a very old book. I think Redfield wrote it. But I'm all about the questions you ask. As a matter of fact, I had the question man trademarked in the 90s as part of my marketing. But And he wrote about the power of questions. And but what I also loved about his book was no one knew about him for two years in his book. So I went around to local um, rotator, and, uh, rotator um, rotary clubs and just did talks for free, sold a couple of books. But eventually, over two years, he gained a following to which publishers saw and they gave him a big contract and then his became a true bestseller for five years. I use that to motivate me. Even. Let's see what else. I gave you three. You need two more. Hmm? Uh, um, Doesn't necessarily uh, have to be sales related. So anything yeah, that yeah, entrepreneurs... Yeah. Think and Grow Rich, obviously, is a good one. And, well, I've done a lot on um, neuroscience and so forth. I can't remember. Well, I, my best one, Healing Back Pain by Dr. John mm-hmm. Sarno, S-A-R-N-O. You know, I had those back surgeries and all, and someone said you should read this book. I wish I read it 30 years ago because I wouldn't have had the surgeries. And I can go into what that book was, but it changed my life. It's for everybody. I don't care if you have back pain or not, read it. Because it tells you what goes on, it creates stress that in turn creates any kind of pain in your body. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. So thank you for sharing that. I also wanted to ask you one thing that really holds salespeople back. And we mentioned Think and Grow Reach there. One of the, it's actually the number one book that I recommend to people, to entrepreneurs. Well, hopefully What's... you'll make that the velocity mindset is number one. Yes. <laughs> so... <laughs> I wanted to ask you, how do you go about overcoming limiting beliefs that you have and how do you help other people overcome their own? My, that's a huge question that I don't know if I can do justice in a couple of minutes. So my best answer is read the velocity mindset. And I'm not saying that being glib. I, the velocity mindset came to me. I was an abused kid. And I'm a child of a Holocaust survivor. Usually kids of Holocaust survivors tend to be abused, not because they don't love you, but because they're damaged by what happened. They don't know what to do and they want to create a safe environment for you. And they'll do whatever. So they create a prison for you, basically. And if you don't follow what they say, then they get uptight and whatever. So, I mean, I was living in a very tough childhood. I saw things I wish I never saw. It really obviously impacted my confidence. Mm-hmm. And, and between that and having a uh, speech impediment that created a lot of bullying for me. Trust me, if anybody had a lot of limiting thoughts, it was me. And, uh, and I shared it in my uh, acceptance speech when I became president of NSA, National Speakers, because I said this idea of me being here, the president of the number one thought leader association in the world, the top speakers, authors, thought leaders. This wasn't even a concept in my mind when I was young. Mm-hmm. I shared the story and it blows them away. So the point is, is um, we all have limiting thoughts. Even today, I have limiting thoughts. We all do. With a limiting thought, the one thing you have to do is not let it go too far where you go down a rabbit hole you can't get out of. So the first thing you have to do is try and remove the emotionality of it. You have to realize it's just a story. It's not the reality. It's a story that you have created. And whoever wrote it can change it. So when you just think of it in that term, then the next thing is, 
let's rewrite the story. And when you start rewriting the story, that's when you get free from those chains. And that's when you become what you're looking to become. Like I said, in this short interview that we have here today, it's really tough to give any more than that. But it's definitely spelled out in the velocity mindset. Thank you, Ron. I have two more questions for you. Number one, in my opinion, the most important ingredient, let's say, to personal success is self-esteem. How do you think that somebody who struggles with low self-esteem can actually go about increasing their self-esteem? Well, they got to do the hard work. I mean, you can go and have someone pat you on the back, which I did for my mother. That didn't really help. All it did was give you like crack a couple of seconds. You felt good, but then you're still back in your same situation. If you really want to get self-esteem, you got to examine inside of you deep where the lack of self-esteem is coming from. And you got to get comfortable and you got to address it. Realize it's not the truth of who you are. And then find ways for you to do certain things that will keep you growing your confidence level. I don't know if that's professional help, having better friends. I've got to tell you something. A lot of us as human beings care, don't want to see someone hurting. So if we see someone with low self-esteem and they, and they call us up, we enable them sometimes by listening mm-hmm. and saying, oh, poor you, poor you, poor you. And all we're doing is giving them the crack, but we're not really helping them. Sometimes if you really want to help somebody like that is just ask them some questions like, well, where is this coming from? And why do you feel like that? And having them do the hard work of asking themselves the question so they can come up with the answers and move forward. If it's you telling them what to do, it doesn't mean anything. So if someone's really in a bad state, ask them some questions that will allow them maybe to see things that they're not saying and hopefully come up with ideas of what they could do differently. Thank you, Ron. I have fired friends. I mean, when I started my business, I was in an executive office and I became friends with this guy who represented a computer industry company. Mm-hmm. And so I go to his office every morning for that coffee, you know, the morning coffee, just to have someone to BS with. But he was the most negative person I ran into. And every time I talked to him, I walked away depressed. And I said, I got to change this. And the only way to change it was to fire him as a friend. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you do have to make those tough calls. Yeah. So make sure you put yourself in an environment that gets the best of you, not that brings you down. I mean, I think that that's key to self-esteem because in the end, it's about learning to love yourself. You know, if you don't love yourself and if you're not comfortable in your own skin, it's very difficult to be able to relate from a level where you can be authentic with other people, where you're not needy, where you're not seeking their approval and so on. So really appreciate your answer there. Final question. You mentioned the Challenger sale. I've also read the book and I'm, I was always really fascinated by how close the lone wolves were in in terms of performance to the challengers. And sometimes the lone wolves actually outperformed the challengers. It's just that it was very difficult to create a structure for what they were doing. So my question to you is, why do you think that happens? And what exactly do you think would you be able to put your finger on what makes the lone wolves special? so that they sometimes even outperform the challengers? I don't think that there's a difference between lone wolves and challengers. I've seen many lone wolves who are successful because they are challengers. So I don't see that distinction. When we do assessments for clients, we look at behaviors and motivators. We know what we're looking for for a top producer. It depends on the sales job. If you're a hunter and you're going after new opportunities and and closing the deals, then you need someone who's a driver, who's an influencer, and they're usually low on process and details. And the motivators, 
they're resourceful, meaning they don't want to waste their time and energy. They want to return on investment. And they're usually commanding because they want to control their destiny. Now, if you move towards a um, technical sale or a key account sale that's more technical, like in medical devices, and it's a natural account sale, then maybe you need more process and details because you're you're creating a process for an organization, you're getting involved in their politics and so forth. So it really depends on the type of sales situation you're creating. But the lone wolf is usually successful because they control their destiny and they don't let anybody get in the way. Their biggest problem is that they're usually promoted to managers because they were successful. And the reason why they fail is because then they don't see what their new purpose is and they don't gravitate towards it. An example that I have is there was a natural account manager. He was that lone wolf who was very successful. He went out and did his thing and he challenged people in a way to think differently. And now he's the manager and he still lived for that crack. Let the Mm -hmm. fire long go and then he'll run and save the day. So he would train his people to call him if they had a hard deal and he'll fly out. And he was flying all over the country. And his job was not to do that because he'd go out there and he'd take over the call, save the day. But the problem was now they were trained whenever they had hard calls, call him Mm, instead of him doing it (laughs) 24-7 in his absence. The real job of the manager at that time is not the glory like they were under the lone wolf. The real job is to assess, see how the person does in the call, then coach them in between calls and build them up so that they can do it over and over. A top performer, when they're selling, obviously, their success is dependent on their efforts. When they're a manager, their success is dependent on the efforts of others. Mm-hmm. Your, your role now is not to become the best salesperson as a manager. Your role is to make your people more successful than they ever thought was possible. And when that happens, you become very successful in that position. Thank you for your answers, Ron. And it's been fascinating having you. Any last thoughts for our audience? Yeah, what COVID taught all of us is the time's short. We don't know how much longer we have or what we have. So make each and every day count. See what purpose you have for that day, who you want to talk to, who, what, what relationships you value, and make it count. And make sure your actions, your tasks support that purpose. If you do that, you will be living the velocity mindset. Yeah, so um, one thing that your viewers can do is go to velocitymindset.com. That's velocitymindset.com. Number one, we're going to ask you for your email and first name. We're not going to sell to you. We send videos every week on how you can stay in the Velocity Mindset conversation. But there's also a leadership assessment, free of charge. Take it. It's five questions you rate yourself, but then you also get the tips and best practices on how you can move forward in those areas. So those are two valuable things when you go to velocitymindset.com. Plus, you also get a link to buy the book which is located on Amazon. And Amazon is the best place to get the best price for, I mean, for the Velocity Mindset book. Thank you for coming on, Ron. And to our listeners, stay tuned for the next episode. And until next time, keep growing your businesses and providing massive value to the world. Remember, you are the reason why we're all growing richer, our freedoms are expanding, and we're all living in greater prosperity. Thank you. Thank you.